Hey, welcome everybody. This is the State of the CIO, where we talk with America's top IT leaders about the changing role of technology in the C-suite. I'm your host, Dan Kelly. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. We've got a wonderful guest. His name is Tony Gerth. Uh, he's a clinical professor at the University of North Texas, a principal at ABG Executive Advisors, and the author of Taking the Reins as CIO, A Blueprint for Leadership Transitions. Hey, Tony, how are you doing? Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today because I know in your book you talk about the, the importance of managing the transition process very carefully, specifically as a CIO, as well as you know how the role of the CIO has changed uh, from your perspective over the last few years. So I know our audience is going to get a lot of value out of this conversation. Could you maybe just give a quick introduction uh, for the audience so everyone knows who they're who they're listening to and both a personal and professional level? Sure. Well, as you said, I'm a clinical professor at the University of North Texas. I teach um, IT management to undergraduate and graduate students. I've been teaching full-time for about 13 years. Prior to that, I spent 15 years as a consulting partner at Deloitte and Infosys. And prior to that, I worked in industry for 13 years, something like that. So if you add all those up, you'll figure out how old I am. <laughs> I, but uh, yeah, I live in a suburb of Fort Worth, Texas with my wife, and we're close to uh, two of our three kids uh, and four grandkids. So, Now, I've got to ask, Tony, have you always wanted to enter into the academic realm, or is this something that just kind of happened? Yeah, that would be a podcast all by itself. <laughs> I, uh, no, it was, it was always a, a long-term goal for me. I, I made the transition a little earlier in my career than I expected, but I've really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's given me a lot of freedom to work on things that, um, I wouldn't have the time to work on otherwise. So, right. Right. And, and I know you've, uh, kind of experienced the gamut, right. From consulting to working in big industry to, um, to working in academics. I, I'm curious, what were the main reasons for you actually writing the book and focusing specifically on this, this transition topic? Because you obviously you've made quite a bit of transition yourself. Yes, I have. Well, um, the book concept actually grew out of my, um, the research I did for my doctoral degree. And my co-author, uh, Joe Pepper, and I worked together on the book. And, you know, we, we just realized that there's a lot of information out there about the first 90 days, first 100 days. And Michael Watkins' book, The First 90 Days, uh, is a great book. And we really, that was one of the pieces of literature that we wanted to build on. But there really wasn't much about CIOs, number one. And what there was about CIOs was really just focused on trying to provide people with a 90 or 100 day playbook. And I just felt that there was a lot more to it than that. And uh, so we constructed a research project around studying how a CIO transitions into a new appointment and how long does it take them to I would say gain mastery of the job in the, in that organization. So, obviously, the, the majority of our listenership here is specifically CIOs and or you know VPs of IT within a leadership team 
component. Naturally speaking, I know everyone experiences, wow, I wish, uh, I wish I would have known to do things a little differently when I transitioned into a new company, or maybe they're looking to transition right now. And they're thinking about things that they uh, should attack maybe in the first 30, 60, 90 days, as well as more of a roadmap view um, year or two years out, you know, both from an operational perspective, but also really just a cultural one, which includes team building, leadership, et cetera. So maybe could you talk me through some of the key key points that people think about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, kind of starting in the broadest sense, you know, we identified different transition contexts that CIOs find themselves in. Well, let me even back up from there. So the, the research is about 10 years worth of research that, that Joe and I have done on the role of the CIO as well as CIO transitions. We've talked to probably over 200 CIOs. We've got a survey data from over 600 CIOs. We talked to maybe 100 uh, non-IT executives as well. So I wanna provide some in- insights from them on the CIO role. So it's it's quite an extensive amount of research that that we've synthesized in the book. But we identified different transition contexts and these are pretty intuitive to be honest. You know, is it a turnaround? Is it a successful organization that I'm just taking over to keep it going in the right direction? Is it a realignment? So maybe the organization is the IT function is viewed as being headed for trouble and I have to bring it back into the center of the lane, that kind of thing. And what we found was that those transitions are, those are common. And those transitions also include the dynamic of whether the person is an insider or an outsider, an insider promoted from within the organization, an outsider being somebody hired external to the organization. And what we found was regardless of the transition context, and regardless of whether the person was an insider or an outsider, they experienced taking charge of this new appointment over the course of three distinct but overlapping phases. And we identified those phases as the entry phase, which is the traditional 90 to 100 days, the stabilization phase, uh, which kind of runs from potentially the beginning of the appointment through about the first nine months to 12 months of the appointment. And then what we called a renewal phase, which really probably starts at month six or nine and takes the CIO out to um, between two and, and three years. So, you know, it was interesting because one of the things that we expected to find was that insiders would take charge more quickly or maybe it would take longer for um, somebody in a turnaround transition rather than taking over a successful organization. And what we really found was that wasn't the case, that these three phases and the timelines were um, pretty consistent across any of those other characteristics of the transition. And Tony, let me just ask you a quick question. It, that was a result of essentially uh, feedback and data you were receiving from these interviews when you did kind of like an ethnographic research. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. We um, we had pretty extensive interviews with CIOs, with over a couple hundred CIOs, talking to them about how they approached a transition 
and then we synthesize the phases and the activities and the different outcomes from the phases from those conversations. Yeah. And we actually have quite a few of those quotes in the book directly from our interviews from the CIOs. Right. And within um, your analysis, I'm curious, were you able to develop different personas? I, I haven't read the book yet, Tony, I have to admit. <laughs> so just looking for a quick preview. Um, but specifically, did you develop personas um, as a result of this, of how, you know, different types of personalities make decisions? Or is it is it more holistic, uh, perhaps? Yeah, it's more holistic. We didn't drill into a lot of the individual characteristics of the CIOs. Uh, we were more interested in the in focusing on the process of taking charge. Right. That's really interesting. And so. I'm curious on what are the, because people always like to take away specific action items or insights, you know, from these short episodes. And so I'd be curious, did you find like two or three key activities that were always a mistake when people were transitioning, that they always wish they did something differently? Or on the other side of the coin, you know, two or three things that worked really well um, that they told you about? No common mistakes per se, but let me let me give you I'll kind of run to the very end where I think there are some important insights. So in addition to the CIOs, we also talked to uh, CXOs and we talked to them about uh, the CIOs they had worked with and what they thought defined success for a CIO. And if we kind of look at the maybe the more negative mirror image of that question, we were pretty well able to define the top three reasons that CIOs derail, right? That they're unsuccessful according to their peers. And I would say in no particular order, those are uh, failure to deliver on commitments. So if a CIO can't deliver the projects and services that the organization expects, that's a negative, of course. The, the second is a failure to develop relationships with peers. So productive relationships, personal relationships with the, the uh, rest of the top management team was a success factor. Therefore, uh, a lot of CIOs fail because they can't, can't do that. And the third failure was uh, a failure to adopt or adapt to the culture of the organization. And this came out strongly from the CXOs and the CIOs themselves who said, look, one thing that you have to understand is um, just because you were able to implement certain changes at a certain speed in your prior organization doesn't mean that those changes in the pace of change will be the same in your new organization. So you have to understand, as one CIO put it, you have to understand whether you're in a walking or a running organization. And uh, if it's a walking organization, don't expect it to run. So I really think it's it's all about, you know, delivering commitments, which is just the fundamental part of doing the CIO job, but also developing those relationships and um, and adapting to the organization culture. And I think that that speaks to why uh, even experienced CIOs, whether they were on their second appointment or their, you know, 12th appointment still took the same amount of time, this two to three years worth of time 
to effectively take charge in a new organization because they were constantly trying to diagnose and adapt to, you know, the new context and the new challenges. Right. And do you think, and and you might've addressed this in the book, or you might just have a personal opinion. Either one is fine, Tony, right? Do you think the expectations have changed, let's call it over the last 10 years, or do you think they've stayed rather consistent? If you asked those same participants 10 years ago, would, would it be the same? In many ways, I think it would be the same. One thing that's definitely the same is uh, the CIO role is very ambiguous. Uh, You know, even after 40 years of evolution, the role is still evolving. In fact, I find it interesting. I'm noticing more and more, and I'm talking to more and more CIOs that now have the chief digital officer, the chief data officer title. Uh, If it's not in their title, it's in their responsibilities. Uh, so I, I find that an interesting trend. Yeah. And when we speak to a lot of um, chief innovation officers, right, versus uh, the chief information officer, all with the same title, generally speaking, you know, may have a different flavor. Just curious if you have any comments on that as far as the evolution of the role. Oh, to being more of a chief infor- innovation officer. Yeah. I mean, ask, asking the question maybe a little bit more uh, provocatively, right? Do you... Do you think the role has changed over the last five to 10 years to warrant the different title? Or is it simply uh, something that sounds better and a little bit more hip than a chief information officer? Well, there's always a little of that too, right? But no, I think the, I think the role is evolving. I think if you look at the depth and breadth of digital technologies today, and this is what I share with my students, that... I don't really remember a time that there have been so many technologies that are making such a big impact on the way we do business and the way we live our lives personally. So I think the role of the the CIO is broadening because, because of this, the necessary digital transformation, and that brings a lot of innovation, uh, not only on a technology front, but a business process front. And the best CIOs are experts in the business process across the organization because they have a cross-functional view. They have to have a cross-functional view of the organization. So I I do believe that it's, you know, Joe and I say in the book, it's a golden age to be a great CIO. It's also a bad time to be an average CIO because I think there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity that is is within the CIO's traditional span of control on innovation, digital transformation, and um, just making a big impact on the on the business. If you look at the trend, I think is that the multiplier effect for information technology in organizations continues to go up. So the potential impact on business value that the CIO can have is pretty significant. And that's why we also say being an average CIO, it's not a good time for that because you also have the flip side. If somebody's not doing an adequate job, then they're also making uh, more of a negative impact on the organization. Where have you found the most uh, impact being when when someone transitions into a CIO role, uh, whether the previous incumbent was not performing or they just changed or retired, whatever, really doesn't matter, right? What do you recommend? CIOs do immediately to gain that 
what I consider strategic business partner status uh, versus just the CIO that keeps the lights on? That's a great question. And, and what we found in the research was that um, I mentioned this stabilization phase that kind of runs from month zero or one through month nine or 12. It varied a little bit, but that phase is the phase where the CIO earns the credibility by delivering on in-flight projects and resolving service issues, if there are any, earns the credibility as the IT leader to then transition into the next phase, which is to be more of a trusted business partner. Now, there are certainly some leading edge organizations that expect the CIO to be strategic immediately. And in those organizations, the dynamic is a little bit different, but in most organizations, the CIO, a new CIO, no matter how experienced they are, uh, has to spend some time earning the right, so to speak, and developing the credibility to then start to make more strategic impact. And that's, that's what we've seen in our research. There's some other academic research that backs that that up. So I think the, the first thing is um, make sure you you have your house in order and you can deliver on commitments. And the quicker you can build that credibility and that trust with the top management team, the quicker they'll start to give you some strategic uh, leeway. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but related to this topic. Okay. I'm curious whether or not you would recommend CIOs to have a little experience in the consulting field versus just working for big business in an FTE role. That's a really good question. Um, one thing that we have concluded is that there's no standard path to becoming a CIO, but certainly a, a fair number of the people we interviewed had spent some time in consulting at some point in their career or just prior to becoming a CIO. Uh, having been a consultant myself, I would say that one thing it can help you, you get used to adapting to new organizational cultures and identifying culture and building relationships. So, you know, maybe that's a skill set that really translates over. Well, typically consultants have, um, good communication skills. So, you know, all those skill sets work, but there's still a lot of CIOs that kind of came up through IT organizations who have been very successful. So. Yeah. And part of the reason for me asking that is over at Negotiator Guru, we, we work with a lot of what I call interim CIOs or gig CIOs or partially shared CIOs, right? Across uh, multiple very large businesses. I mean, these aren't just startups that are looking to pay for 25% of people's time. I mean, these are $5 billion organizations and, and larger from a revenue standpoint, right? And I think that part of the industry trend is is just to capture as much diverse experience as possible to elevate the business versus versus the typical approach. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts, thoughts on that and if that type of role uh, has helped or, or hurt the industry. I don't know if it's really helped or hurt the industry. I think it's probably just a function of um, the ambiguity in the CIO role. I mean, the problem is if you sit down with a group of CEOs and you ask them what they expect of a CIO, you'll get as many opinions as you have people, right? Uh, now, if you, if you take that same group and you ask them, what do you expect out of a chief financial officer? 
the answer is pretty much going to be the same because that role has been around for a long time. It's a mature role. Sure, it varies from organization to organization a little bit, but uh, not near like the CIO role does, right? So we have CIOs who are still expected to do nothing but keep the servers running and, and the email up to the CIOs that are strategic business partners and leading digital innovation and, and everything in between. So so I think that um, part of this idea of having the interim CIOs is simply that a lot of times the CEO doesn't know what kind of CIO they need, or they just think they need to have something fixed and don't really realize that they need some consistent leadership in that role. As you're talking, Tony, I was just thinking it's actually, you know, depending on your personality and how you like to lead or, or be led, perhaps, right? It's actually a wonderful experience for people to write their own role almost, right? When you enter into an organization. I mean, if expectations are that ambiguous, why not come out and say, this is exactly what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be rated versus letting someone else tell you uh, how you're going to be rated, just like the CEO, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the CIO role is a senior enough role that, you know, that person should be able to um, proactively manage those expectations and establish a definition of success. One thing we say in the book is, you know, you need to make sure that you have a shared understanding between yourself and the CEO for sure, but even the top management team on, you know, what does success look like for the IT organization? And by definition, the CIO. Right. How often do you recommend CIOs do that to ensure that there's alignment both inside the organization, but to make sure that they're capturing as much value from their teams? Of course, doing it during due diligence before they join an organization is important. But like any role, most of the CIOs will tell you there's no way you can establish everything before you end up on the ground. So so I would say, you know, it's definitely a first 90 to 100 days type activity because everything else you do from that point on is based on those those expectations. And being able to manage those expectations and and shape those expectations, even if it's becoming a strategic business partner and it might not, and it may take two years to get there, you still need the CEO to be on board that that's eventually where you need to go. Now, I'll also say that not being naive about this, a lot of CIOs or CEOs will say they want a strategic CIO. And then the CIO shows up and all they want to do is control costs, right? So there's always that dynamic in there as well. Yeah, we, we um, uh, I'm shaking my head quite a bit here. We, we hear that quite a bit from our clients uh, and that hence one of the reasons they're reaching out to us, right? But the, the fact that, you know, the strategic imperatives, which are supposed to be uh, drive digital innovation, have been uh, more keep the lights on and cut costs, <laughs> So. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And and if you're, a, you know, if you're a strategic thinking CIO and you find yourself in that position, you're either going to try to turn it around or you're going to leave the the organization, right? Right. How we've tried to put a, you know, a positive spin on that is allowing uh the CIO to save money in their budget but allow them to reinvest that those funds that we help them save into more of the innovation 
more kind of the fun projects, if you will. And and I feel like that strategy has been working really well because it's it's not a um, a net impact to budget, right? They're just reinvesting. Right. And the CIOs that I've talked to, you know, have been honest and said, look, I, you know, I would prefer to work on strategic things, but depending on the economics and, you know, where the company is competitively, you know, I realize that we may have to take a two-year cost-cutting, cost-containment uh, focus before we can get back to, you know, a strategic kind of thing. I mean, lately, in, in the last 10 years or so, we haven't had to deal with that too much, right, because the economy's been booming. But, you know, as we go through these cycles, of course, what they need from the CIO changes as well. Now, I have to ask you, Tony, I know some uh, some interesting facts. You've got quite a bit of interesting facts on a career basis. I believe you've worked in over uh, 20 countries. Is that right? I have, yes. And, you know, I'd love for you to just quickly explain how that's positively impacted your maybe perspective, you know, without without getting too hypothetical. I, I you know, I, I truly believe diverse experience shapes everyone personally and professionally. So I, I'm curious as you're speaking to this CIO audience, uh, you know, if if maybe you have some some individuals that haven't left the U.S., right? Should they consider leaving? Uh, maybe do a short work assignment somewhere else. Maybe do an extended travel. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, I think definitely. Uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, actually live in as an expat for a couple of years, and that's certainly a a great experience. Um, you know, you can visit a place, but until you live in a place, you don't get the whole experience. But certainly you know, working in so many different countries and working with people uh, from so many different cultures, it broadens your perspective, I think, in two ways. One is you realize that in many ways, maybe it's 80%, we're all the same, no matter where we come from. You know, people have similar career aspirations, they want to do a good job, etc. They have families, communities, uh, no matter where they live. The other thing you realize is the 20% that's different is really important, <laughs> you know, that you really need to to learn to appreciate that and work with that. People make decisions differently. They view authority differently, you know, all sort of the classic cultural intelligence kind of things. So, you know, for me, it's just been a way to understand the world better and how we're the same, but but how we're also different and, and how you have to account for that when you're leading a diverse team. Yeah. Now I, I've got one, I'm going to shift gears real quickly uh, since you're in the academic world. Right. And, you know, I always like to uh, have our guests share, you know, what would they teach themselves if they were speaking to themselves, you know, 20 years ago as they were starting their career or something of that nature. But my, my first question is, is really going to be with your students and providing your students real world experiences out there, because you know, obviously better than anyone, that the academic classroom is very different than the real world. I don't care where you are. That's just the facts. So I'm, I'm curious how, this is a two-part question. One, saying with what we just said, you know, how are you ensuring, uh, you know, your students are getting to experience a bit of the real world, uh, specifically at, at your university? And second, Naturally speaking, we have a lot of CIOs. We're entering into the summer months, right, et cetera. Uh, but we've got a lot of people that take on interns and co-ops within their organizations, right? You know, how would you suggest those CIOs utilize 
that type of role inside of their organization to both better the the student or the co-op, but also their own organization with their diverse experiences. Well, I think the the uh, so from the student perspective, I think the way that the probably the most important way that I try to prepare students for the real world, so to speak, or their professional lives is to try to teach them accountability and critical thinking. So, you know, I assign them cases to analyze and and present, and I give them some pretty direct feedback around the content of the writing. Is the message clear? Can you explain your thinking really from the standpoint of the kind of feedback they would get from, from their manager when they go on to their first job and they have to make a presentation about some sort of problem that they analyzed and a solution that they're recommending. So I, I try not to let them get by with the empty assertions and <laughs> lack of uh, date, data that they, they're very comfortable with. And, and well, and to be honest, we're all like that when we're that age, right? Until we've learned that that doesn't cut it, then, you know, how would we know? What I would say for people that are hiring interns, uh, first of all, I've worked with a lot of generations now, a couple different generational groups of, of students, and I just don't see the big difficulty in their expectations. I mean, in, in my mind, when I was 22 years old, I was impatient. I thought I knew it all. I wanted feedback. All the things that you hear that are frustrating with millennials, I was the same way. <laughs> and I'm no millennial, right? So, so I think that's all very natural. And you should just expect that when you're working with people, professionals of, of that age, at that point in their career. And I would also say from what I've learned over the years is most of the uh, the partners, corporate partners that hire interns or hire undergrads really underestimate what they can do. Now, that's great because the students can exceed expectations, but I really think that they should have higher expectations for what the, the students or the new hires, new graduates can do because given the right motivation and the right kind of mentoring, uh, it's amazing what what those folks can do. So, Right. And, and the basis behind my question is really to promote our listeners, you know, IT leadership, if you will, stop giving interns grunt work, I guess is what I could say, <laughs> just to be so blunt, right? Yeah, no, it's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I can't name names of clients, et cetera, but, uh, you know, we, we support one specific client uh, heavily, more so than any other one that I personally support. Long story short, they had a uh, had a co-op that they assigned essentially to me, uh, you know, as an external advisor to them, but essentially to to do two things: one, really just mentor and coach, but two, to use this resource uh, to gather information, etc. And I tell you, I was blown away by <laughs> the not only just the thoroughness, but the specific, uh, the style in which they presented information surpasses, quite frankly, my capabilities, Tony, uh, <laughs> I, honestly, um, in using Excel even, right? So, and I'm the first to admit that. I, so it was, um, it was excellent. And I think that comes from one, not having any preconceived notions of what normal is, and two, having the power of focus and motivation to your point. Is that fair, Tony? 
Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, just don't underestimate what they can do. Challenge them. And I think you'll be amazed at the output and the quality of the work they do. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, You know, my last question is, and this will be pretty easy for you, I assume, Tony, since you're speaking to uh, to younger people each day. But, you know, if you were to speak to someone at the beginning of their career to give them some some key advice based on your learnings, what would it be? Well, a couple of things that come to mind, uh, one certainly is a cliche, which is it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> so just realize that it may take some time to get to accomplish the kind of things that you want to accomplish or get in the, in the type of role that you really think you want. Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be pursuing it all the time, but just realize that it may not happen overnight. I think the other thing that's really important that I try to emphasize with my students is it's really all about people. And especially in information technology, it's easy to be enamored with the technology itself because that's what draws most of us to that domain. But in reality, uh, the technology is relatively easy compared to influencing and motivating and building relationships with um, with other people. And so don't, uh, don't ignore the soft skills, including communication and, and learning to be clear in your communication of ideas. Spend a lot of time getting good at that as well. That's some great advice, I think, for all of us, not just people at the beginning of their career. <laughs> yeah. Well, sh- sure, you know, I wanted to mention being concise, but as a professor, I'm probably not the most concise <laughs> person in the world. So, Yeah, understood. Well, this has been a really great discussion, Tony. Do you, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? Well, I think the, the one final thought, if, if we rewind a little bit back to the the CIO transition theme is simply that what the research shows and what, you know, people have told us is you have to realize when you take a new appointment that there's some interim steps and interim outcomes that are going to happen, but it's really going to take you two to three years to get your feet firmly, you know, established in the organization So it's a lot more than a 90 to 100 day plan. You need that 90 to 100 day plan to get started, but you should also be looking at more of a two to three year roadmap as well. That's really helpful, Tony. Thank you very much. And, you know, if um, people wanted to either buy your book, because I know that's uh, out on the shelves, uh, could you remind people what it's called? And as well as if they wanted to get um, in touch with you, how would they how would they do that? So the book is on Amazon and uh, Kindle or hardback. And the title is Taking the Reins as CIO, a Blueprint for Leadership Transitions. And if you want to get a touch with me, the best way is simply um, my uh, university email address, which is anthony.gerth, G-E-R-T-H, at unt.edu. But if you just Google Tony Gerth, you're going to find me. So, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Tony. I know the audience got a lot of value out of our conversation. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate uh, and I enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. Hey, everyone, if you found value in today's episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show. 
And also feel free to send any feedback to me personally at dan at thenegotiator.guru. Thanks and have a great day. Keep on listening. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's conversation, please share this podcast with one person you think who would enjoy it. For show notes, episodes, and more, please visit thenegotiator.guru. Look forward to hearing from everyone soon. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.